Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. I'm Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Lovely day, so enjoying it's... the smell of spring in the air. I was going to say, it's suddenly starting to feel like spring, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so to, on today's episode, we're going to take a look at an article by the engineer based around uh, ARIA, ARIA, I'm going to call it, which is uh, yeah, all about innovation funding and uh, where that money comes from and goes to. Uh, we also have a chat with Barry Maybank of the MTC. Uh, and then later on, we're joined by our co- colleague Darren Hull, uh, who's going to talk to us about micro and nano services. Well, predominantly about how they talk to each other. Exactly. Mm. Uh, yeah, so first of all, we will pop a link to this in the episode description, but the engineer uh, looking at ARIA, ARIA um, which is a new innovation funding um, prospect, but obviously there are many innovation funding um, sources uh, some that we work with, some that are global, some that are local. Uh, so we thought it would be a good idea to have a look at those, look at this, what their different focus is and how they uh, how they aim to change things for the future. Yeah, so what brought my attention on this article was very much about how innovation is funded because this sounds like a new organisation that's being set up um, that's parallel to the US approach. Um, and... What I found interesting that and being involved with the innovation structure, both in Europe and the UK, is mm. I didn't realise we needed another organisation. <laughs> 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 so it's one of those things you're kind of going, do we need another one? What's the what's the purpose of this one compared with Innovate UK or um, the other mechanisms that are in place to to fund innovation? Uh, in, in in UK and Europe, so it kind of that's what really triggered my my spider senses on this one. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes when you see these uh, promotions, you're wondering, well, you know, Innovate UK has an annual budget of well over seven billion um, pounds to support innovation. Um, we also still have, you know, have, have and had access to things like the European Horizon 2020. Um, funding programs, which is now being launched as um, Horizon Europe. Um, so there's there's lots of uh, you know, is this a kind of slightly diversion or um, uh, to see how we can change the way that we're we're um, monitored for how we do about how we go about innovating and funding innovation. So if yeah, we come back I guess to the- that's the oh, the question I would have is, yeah, is it is it really down to what the focus is? Do they do they each have a sort of not an end goal, but an area in which they want to innovate? Or is it um, a different way of allocating those resources or different industries that they work with? Or yeah, what's the what's the, the clincher? Yeah, and that comes to what we talk about innovation, really. And one of the ways to gauge innovation is something called the technology readiness levels. Um, And that's really a way of saying, uh, how do we move innovation through a level of maturity that can be scaled um, through industry? Um, And this kind of technology readiness level was introduced by NASA in the 1970s. We can't move far away from space on this program. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't want to. (laughs) So we start at technology level one, which is really a fundamental basic research, which is generally carried out by universities. I mean, who else wouldn't carry out your your, your fundamental research? Um, And and then what's happened uh, in the past is because they've identified what they call these valleys of death for innovation is if you're trying to push innovation through from universities into industry you needed something to bridge that gap and that's where the likes of the manufacturing technology center the mtc who we're going to talk to barry they cover that space where they're taking those kind of ideas and concepts from universities and they're developing those technologies and delivering a level of readiness more than universities could offer Mm. Um, and you know you've got to look at what innovation or technology we're talking about could be everything from material science to advanced robotics to ai and all those types of things um, and computer science whatever that technology is 
that's being um, innovated. Once the idea is then, once you come out of those um, what they call RTOs, research technology organizations, and they come into the industrial space where industrial business will then adopt those technologies and scale them. So the technologies readiness level goes from everything from one through to nine, with nine being launch and operation readiness, if you like, in the terminology right. of launching stuff. Um, so, you know, how do you fund appropriately or how do you set up structures and organizations to fund appropriately that level all the way through from one to nine, which is always slightly the challenge um, because we end up in this kind of push-pull situation, if you like. Um, you've got the pull of industry who wants a level of uh, use cases solved for them. Um, mm. They could invest in them. But what we've seen, especially with, as we talked about with COVID before, the COVID vaccines, you know, being rolled out globally, a huge, huge success. It only takes a couple of weeks to to um, actually generate the the or using the latest technology that's taken over 10 years to develop, but it only takes two weeks to actually sequence these the COVID um, and to produce a vaccine for it. The, net, the rest of the time is very much about proving its efficacy and its safety, etc. Mm. So, you know, but it took 10 years to develop that technology. So through yeah. the technology readiness levels, it takes a lot of time and investment in innovation. And as I said before, I think the lifeblood of humanity is innovation. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we don't want to cut off the lifeblood of our, of what we're kind of striving to improve and get better on. But the, the trouble comes, how do you fund innovation, ultimately? Um, because it's, you know, it's, it doesn't really live in the commercial world. It lives in the universities. It lives in the research technology institutes. It lives in those um private companies um, like ourselves that that want to invest in innovation because we have an interest in it um, for one and we want to make sure that we're bridging that gap between if you like the uh, demonstrators at technology uh, level six and bringing them all the way through to level nine you know we're yeah. part of that overall and that's what those um the uh, the industrial challenge fund that was set up in the UK um, is there, or the Horizon 2020 programs, and as I said, as now it's Horizon Europe, was set up. So there can be these 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 challenges put down to both universities, RTOs, and um, private businesses who want to innovate together to try and solve a particular problem. Yeah, I mean, one thing I picked up from this article is off the back of that. It's these lift the weight of that commercial expectation. So you don't, like you say, have to have a technology that's ready to go and ready to sell, which is obviously what a lot of industry need because they can't afford to be adopting things that aren't initially going to be um, commercially viable. So you have these funds to bridge that gap between just understanding it and researching it, then producing it, then proving it out as a, a commercially viable prospect. Yeah, and that's why I talk about this push-pull point because I think there's a lot of – the way that the technology readiness levels are, are are interpreted I think is incorrect in a way because fundamental research shouldn't have a pull. It should be just about inquisitive, inquire, you know, inquiring into this, that, and the other. And the trouble with connecting the pull of industry to the push of knowledge is that mm. everybody expects there to be an outcome. And it, and it's not it doesn't work that way you know fundamental research into something doesn't have a direct line to um, how that that fundamental research can be used and and commercialized um, there are many fundamental stuff that goes on that never gets to a commercial point of view, but it builds that um, knowledge base of which ultimately something bubbles up or emerges from. Um, and and therefore, yes, we have to we have to fund universities and research just because of we want to improve the the basis of human knowledge ultimately. Mm. Um, but at some point, that knowledge does start to emerge into something that's quite useful, 
um, and then once we get it either useful or beautiful, um, then, then industry will start to show an interest in it. But it's all about de-risking. You know, industry isn't there to um, really, or private sector isn't there to try and de-risk all of these potential ideas and concepts. So they want it to a level of de-risk or a level of maturity that they can get and it for it to be useful um, mm. before they, they will show an interest in it. Um, and, you know, I think that at that level there, yeah, there's a level of looking how we fund and commercialise that. And that's why I think those collaborations work really well because you are bringing all elements together with those competition funds. So more my point is the system kind of is there today set up and working it's relatively new uh, when you look at the setup of the um setup of the challenge fund you know we're only talking a few years ago really so how we how we innovate and uh, change is is relatively a new thing um and mainly because there, there has been some assessment on the amount of innovation and uh, the they call it the kind of bang for the buck for the treasury, if you like. Mm. It, it, innovation does ultimately, if even if there aren't direct lines between how much money you spend on innovation and how much gets commercialised, there is a understanding that for every pound, dollar or euro spent on innovation, ultimately... Um, you, you that goes back into the system effect. yeah yeah you get a far bigger multiplier effect on that and if you don't innovate as a country you, you're then either adopting other people's technology um, and some of that comes around the intellectual property and all that type of thing which is a mm. big part of what we're discussing as well because the closer you get to commercialization the closer you get an isolation effect because you're you're looking to um, um you're looking to create that intellectual property built around it ultimately mm. so yeah how this new organization will change and affect that um setup i think is um is is interesting um or is it just a way of making it more difficult to account for where the innovation funding mm. flowing or going uh is is we'll, we will see but both interesting with the fact that the uk you know uk's announced it and the horizon europe scheme um, uh, which runs from here yeah, from 2021 to 2027 so but we're keeping an eye on both of those to see um, exactly how um, we can get involved in those innovation projects with people especially around the likes of 5g and things like that i think 5g still got a long way to go and we're involved in one of those projects at the moment um, so uh, how we can use that technology in an effective way um, I think has still got some miles to run in the innovation side. Mm. Well, it's exciting stuff. And if these if these funds act, act as they're supposed to, we should see some great innovation. Well, the one, yeah, we should definitely see some innovation. And I think um, in this article, it talks about also allowing for failure, for example. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's also open to interpretation, but failing fast or... Uh, what failure really means um, is probably a, a discussion for another day. But um, whatever, yeah, whatever well, it is, it's nice to innovate. Real world, Tony Stark, Elon Musk often says, if you're not failing, you're not innovating. So, yeah, there you he go. seems to be doing something. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I think maybe now is time we uh, head over and have a chat with Barry Maybank. So for this uh, Atlas podcast interview, we are joined by Barry Maybank, who is the Chief Digital Officer of the MTC, which is the Manufacturing Technology Centre. Hi, Barry. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Hi, Alex. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Uh, if you'd like to give us a, just a brief background on who you are, how you got here, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, no, it's it's great to be part of the podcast series, actually. So, yeah, Barry Maybank, uh, I work for the MTC. So, if people don't know, it's the Manufacturing Technology Centre. We're one of seven uh, what's called high-value manufacturing catapults uh, around the country. And we're an RTO, so a research technology organisation. But if you think of us as a, I suppose, as a transitional organisation, really. So, on the one hand, we're kind of nurturing 
innovation, as it were, and, and maturing that innovation for market exploitation. But the other sort of angle that is is adoption. Uh, so we're, we're kind of transitional in, in that we provide, a, let's say, a pathway to adoption through different channels. And I guess we can explore those uh, in, in a short while. Large membership, large engagements with industry directly uh, and indirectly. And you can probably imagine a lot of what we're talking about is underpinned by data, you know, much more uh, you know, based on current circumstances and digital. So I'm the chief digital officer sort of driving our manufacturing strategy from a digital perspective and that kind of market employ impact and exploitation. Um, I've been with the MTC about 18 months now, but I come from very much a transformative background, much more mm -hmm. consultancy delivery based. So I kind of bring the more the IT and domain aspect and digital into the OT world. So there's quite a good marriage, really, I think, which is partly why I joined of this OT IT and my kind of role sits quite nicely, uh, joining the helping join the two up, as it were. Um, what, what I was fascinated about with that is um, we, we always kind of talk about and let people introduce themselves and things like this and you've kind of gone into the mtc side of things but how did you how how did you get into it you know what, what what was the education for you um you know and how did you even make that journey in this direction really what was the thing that made you want to get involved with technology and IT and those type of things? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, there's different aspects to that, Martin. I mean, I, I've been a, a, a technologist for 30 years now. I mean, you know, you, you know we've, we've been around a bit and seen different things. And, and actually, I started in manufacturing, actually. I started in aerospace, uh, you know, many years ago as an engineer, as a software engineer, um, you know, re really enjoyed the domain, really enjoyed the kind of engineering, you know, side of things and the discipline side of things uh, and kind of moved, you know, moved through different uh, organizations, both end clients, but also technology provider organizations, also integrators and consultancy companies, but all with a similar kind of, kind of bent, really kind of industrial change, through technology kind of, you know, kind of adoption enablements. That's always been my sort of passion in, in the roles that I've taken. And I kind of enjoy that sort of looking at it from different lenses. I think if you're just in, you know, you just a um, in manufacturing operations, you don't appreciate what other industries are doing and, and, and the benefits. So I've kind of, you know, kind of work cross sector um, from telecommunications and uh, retail consumer, but I spent quite a bit of time in in the manufacturing sector. So I kind of think, you know, moving to the MTC, I talk, touched a little bit about you know what we do. I think it really is um, a kind of key, you know, key environment. It's a condensed environment, if you like. It really sort of compresses a lot of innovation across a lot of industries and a lot of, you know, pathways to adoption. So it's quite an exciting space to be in. And that's partly the reason I moved from my previous organization into this one, the chance to make impact, the chance to not just work with the larger organizations, but actually some of the smaller ones, which are equally important, right, in the kind of supply chain. So that kind of ability to make impact and influence what's happening at the MTC uh, intersectors is really kind of a big draw for me really and, and don't you, do you, i didn't know you did uh, computer programming previously i'm sure it's probably a lot. i did back in the day back in the day I, I i sort of i suppose my tenure finished in in the sort of object oriented days and uh and in fact i you know back to my uh my it's called smith's industries it's now part of ge avionics uh, in, in cheltenham so i moved there as a graduate but yeah i mean i sort of i was a, an, you know an engineer basically a software engineer and you can probably imagine engineering in flight control systems is quite a discipline so uh, mm. I worked in, in in both the production end of things in flight control systems as a business unit but also in the research uh, you know side of things where we were really looking at pushing the boundary with parallel parallel processing and object orientation before before these things were accredited if you like in the kind of flight systems world so uh, yeah, it was it was good times, but uh, you know, then the architectural responsibilities and CTO kind of roles along the way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So all sort of culminating around industrial change and impact, really. Yeah, and what, what was it about? Um, I, I'm always interested in that kind of journey of people where they they've gone from software or whatever it is. Did you find 
what was it, a draw away from software? Because you get those people who just love software. You know, they kind of, they like every, because it's always evolving, always developing. It's never a boring subject for when you're a software developer because there's so much dynamicism in, in the different approaches. Um, but, you know, other people get drawn to more the kind of business side of it, or as you said, the consultancy side of it. Did you feel a natural draw away from that? Or was it, was it a... Uh, yeah, or was it a kind of push? Was what was the kind of yeah? Like- yeah, I, I've always been a little bit of a say say jack of all trades, but I mean within a certain scope and, and and sphere, really, you know. But but a sort of generalist in those areas. So I was never the best, let's say, developer. I was never the best architect, but I had a good grounding actually, and my. My natural inclination was really around the sort of the sort of so what part of it. You know, well, why why are we doing this? What what does it mean? And and, and how can we improve it? So I was always drawn to that kind of impactful side. And um, you know, more, more and more starting, I had opportunities as an engineer to start to talk to you know wider ecosystems of partners and start to talk to kind of end users, you know, you know more. So my inclination became more driven towards you know working with organisations to help them attain impact, and, th- and then the programs and the projects in that more advisory space kind of got bigger and a bit more transformative. Um, I did a, a tenure at, um, with my previous company working into DWP, and we were looking at driving a different sort of service model, a real business IT sort of service model, and you know how the different um, technology towers came together to really look at driving change in the DWP. You know, so moving away from infrastructure and applications and starting to kind of synergize those things and 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 drive you know true change and then quite a lot of um, advisory led work on the back of that where i think i brought the sort of top floor shop floor kind of conversational style where i could understand you know the sort of um you know challenges at the coal face but articulate those in a more value proposition way so i think my kind of inclination got a bit more business change but but technology led and that's kind of evolved really over the over the last few years in different organizations and in different contexts but it's largely been client facing i spent a a while in in qatar working into vodafone and we set up a brand new telco business for example you know from scratch i mean it's super exciting to launch a new a new business uh that was largely technology enabled right you know a lot of businesses these days are technology kind of companies right they need direction and and a rudder and i think that's certainly where my inclinations uh, come in fascinating stuff um, so, I mean, we've talked a lot on the podcast previously about, yeah, that how industries are starting to work, not just within their own column, but across columns. And it sounds like, yeah, you've brought a lot of that expertise from your previous roles. Um, what do you think is the most interesting thing that has entered manufacturing from the outside world recently? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that adjacency is a really powerful thing, actually, and, and you know some some of those synergies. And, and actually, I mean, you know, manufacturing, its adoption of let's say you know digital, it's probably lower in maturity, you know, as opposed to finance or telecommunications. But mm. you know, we we all know what's going on now, and actually, that's become a catalyst to kind of accelerate and sort of change things, right? And, and we're seeing the best of that, aren't we? You know, we people have referred to the ventilator challenge and actually the ventilator challenge wasn't just about applying some tech was it is actually about doing things in a different way with a different team mentality and a different governance structure you, you know there's a bunch of things wasn't it that kind of culminated in in a successful outcome so i think we've got these sort of shining beacons if you like and and, and sort of blueprints and you know my my passion is to start to certainly from an MTC point of view, to kind of really enable that that kind of pathway. Uh, mm. and, that, and that pathway is not just the MTC. We have to work within an ecosystem. So I'm kind of excited to to start to help curate some of that ecosystem. When we think about what what's coming over and, you know, back to some of those challenges, it's kind of interesting that you can throw some technology at a problem, but, but if you're not careful, you've got a silo, you know, within the business unit. 
So we need to kind of think broader than that. And we need to think about things like much more fluid architectures, um, which have been more prominent in other industries. I, I mentioned telco, very prominent in telco, because disruption, you know, over the last few years with over-the-top providers and, you know, uh, fixed line mobile, there's all sorts of kind of, you know, kind of competitive, uh, you know, elements in that industry where it had to change rapidly. So I like the thought of bringing some of those things over. And I know, Martin, we've spoken in the past about the importance of lots of things, but things like, you know, fluid architectures, which which starts to think about much more modularized capabilities and much more about choreographed, orchestrated, you know, kind of workflows, um, you know, separation of data so we can start to use that in different ways. So I think there's kind of a lots of things that are really translating over and actually timing's really good and we're seeing, you know, great examples of these things coming together and actually actually working. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I really do pick up on that, that, that type of thing because I think what we're trying to do is actually reflect reality. Um, and what I mean by that is we always perceive that IT systems are fixed. You deliver a project, they're fixed. And da, da, da. And when we use the word architect, you compare that to buildings or something like that. We're always kind of making yeah. that, that link to the physical world. But actually, in an IT world, it's so fluid and so dynamic. Um, uh, uh, there's changes happening all the time. And and our technologies are built on thousands of different technology stacks or bits of components or this, that, the other. Or, you know, it used to be, oh, the operating system gets changed every year or something like that. Now, with open source software approaches and things like that, there's components being changed all the time in a very dynamic nature. Um, and, and therefore, more around the architecture and how you deliver change into that architecture, as you said, in a fluid, dynamic way, reflects the reality of what actually happens. Um, and I think for a long time, IT hasn't always reflected the reality because we've had no applications. Yeah, I mean, I totally, totally agree with that. And actually, you know, we, over the years, we've seen democratization of IT, right? You know, where each business unit might do their own thing. And, and, and lo and behold, it's difficult to converge, right? And difficult to get scale and difficult to sometimes see, see value. So, you know, I think, you know, hooking it right back into some of those those business drivers, you know, we're seeing market pivots, we're seeing uh, different supply chains, you know, we're seeing uh, surges in demand, right? You know, we have to think differently and we have to put some of those foundational things in place, right? And, and actually as well, another interesting observation is that, you know, I come from, 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 from different worlds where there's a real focus on design thinking, you know, kind of human system engagement. And mm. I sort of see that really permeating you know what we're doing now in manufacturing not just from a health and safety point of view but it is health and safety as well and remote working point of view but also some of the service efficiencies and kind of innovation and i think we need to think differently about that human kind of interface right you know whether it's extended reality or you know remote proxy working or the you know collaborative kind of engagement models you know the operating model is changing so we're seeing true business drivers right and we're sort of seeing this kind of we need these principles of fluidity and and then sort of technology realizations if you like under that so it's an interesting time and there's a lot of help required you know, my first point was was that pathway to adoption. We're not maybe seeing the accelerated level of adoption that we'd like. And I think that excites me, you know, bringing that together and working with the ecosystem of which ATS is a member, right, of, you know, of the NTC. You know, we need to broker an ecosystem and kind of bring that to, uh, to, to, to enable exploitation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the design thinking is... Um something that was uh, we had in the last podcast we had our ux uh, designer kawani on board um, and uh, yeah it, it, it's something it was one of the key roles that we actually brought in i think alex was one of them where we wanted to be able to tell a story and tell yeah 
and disseminate that information. And I know a lot of the innovation projects have a big portion of dissemination because it's not just about doing something, it's telling people about what you're doing. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 that's a key part of it, isn't it? And actually, you know, we talk about, you know, technology-enabled change. Obviously, a big part of it is is the change aspect, isn't it? You know, you know the, the operating model redesign and the and the people and actually by, by you know bright by bringing you know human sort of system interfaces and, and the kind of richness and the use cases that make business sense engages people early doesn't it you know we we talked about or i mentioned you know the ventilator charge in fact you know we played a role which is around the sort of model driven approach where we're using simulation to prove out some of the operational scenarios but also using virtual commissioning and extended reality to kind of engage the operators, if you like, in those scaled up processes much earlier on in the process. So I think some of the technologies are going to really help with that cultural change and that kind of buy-in and and that stakeholder engagement, which is a really important part of acceptance and and scale as well. Yeah, it's definitely something that um, uh, yeah we embrace, and I think it is and like like I said with the the the. the agile devops thing it, we have to reflect reality of how humans react to things um and well yeah. you know the point of why we adopted the why has everyone got a mobile phone in their pocket is because we've adopted it not because the technology necessarily was great absolutely <laughs> yeah the two mm. things that collide can collide don't they in that kind absolutely of yeah yeah spot yeah. on um, so what's next? What's next, Barry? What's the? Uh, there's lots of change and fluidity at the moment with various um, political ramifications and this, that, and the other. <laughs> there uh, is. Uh, so where are where's where's the MTC heading? Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think back, back to you know back to the point. I think there's obviously a lot. There's a big driver, you know, um, UK PLC, right? You know, leveling up competitiveness on a global scale you know responsiveness and the innovations that you know part of our dna in the uk right you know the you know with the foundations of industry one you know we're we're in the midlands right so there's a lot there's a lot going on it's exciting times but that adoption is key and actually we're part of a made smarter program at the moment it's in the pilot phases which is really around what's called digital innovation hubs it's about providing capability on the ground that the end users and technology providers can access and start to accelerate their thinking, um, their education, but also trial use cases out on on real pre-production facilities. So kind of de-risking their investment, not not diverting resources. So a bit a big push for us um, currently and moving forward uh, around this, this this digital innovation hub is around some of these test beds and starting to engage clients on those. And we mentioned, you know, doing things quicker. We're we're adopting a sprint approach on this to start to get people much more engaged. So there's a lot of adoption if you like you know that's going on at the moment um you know i i want to personally sort of not as the mtc set the agenda of being a system integrator but you know i want to make sure things get bedded in if you like operationally and things scale properly so some of those things we talked about about fluid architectures and the right principles that guide things i think that's the fundamental part of it and we at the MTC have got a role to play in making sure things scale, but working with the likes of yourself from ATS and you know wider ecosystem to make sure that kind of lands and we've got capability ready to enable that. So, you know, that that's a big part of it. I mean, in terms of sort of, you know, sort of futures, we can all get a little bit, you know, blue sky. And I don't think it's appropriate at the moment. People are responding, you know, people are getting resilient and, you know, you know all, all, all those kinds of things. But certainly, you know, we're really bedding down on those manufacturing systems, that ability to be able to, you know, rapidly develop products, new products, um, and also the processes around them. Uh, so there's a lot going on in that kind of space. And if you think about what does that mean in reality, you know, back to this this bit about, you know, where we are today, even in hyper growth industries, there's challenges because there's not the supply, right? So it's all right having hyper growth but you if you haven't got the supply. So actually we're finding a lot of, you know, the real uses of data, you know, I think we're seeing the emergence, the true emergence and impact of data and information. 
and we're doing a lot to help organizations for example you know reshore and start to look at using things like simulation techniques to start to to balance the, the you know the proposition the production the supply chain before they make capital investments so i think there's a you know real emergence of we, we talk about data but you know real usage of data and things like uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to get much more responsive and adaptable so i think we're sort of seeing that kind of you know that that kind of uh, coalescing if you like of data and of course what comes with that is we need to connect things up as well so i think the whole IoT um, thing is going to get bigger and bigger as we connect more things up, as we need to use more data and acquire it. And that gets us into, you know, things like automation and remote working for health and safety reasons, for remote service reasons. So I think some of these are a big, big drivers. In fact, um, we've just signed a new a new contract with a with a partner, West Midlands 5G. So, you know, on, on the 5G, we're kind of powering, you know, some of that kind of remote connectivity, you know, kind of capability with things like 5G. So kind of lots of interesting, uh, you know, stuff, but um you know, I think there is a really need to do things differently. And I think that's at the heart of, you know, what we're talking about here. How do we speed thing of the, some of these things up? And what sort of pathways do we create to speed some of these things up? Recognizing that not everybody's super innovative. You know, if you're a SME, you're probably more of an adopter of more mature things. Whereas if you're a large OEM, you might be looking at more early adopter things. So we kind of need to recognize people who are on different sort of aspects of the scale, as it were. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Uh, well, I think looking at the time, we might be up here. Uh, unless you have anything else, Martin? No, it's been fascinating. Always good to speak with Barry anyway. So this has given us opportunity to contain him for a half an hour so we can have a good discussion, with, which is always fascinating. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll have you back. Thank you so much for joining us, Barry. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Fantastic. We'll see you next time. And so for this tech spot section of the Atlas podcast, Martin and I are joined by Darren Hull, who is cloud architect for Atlas. Uh, he's going to talk with us a bit about micro and nano services. Hello, Darren. Thank you for joining us. Hi, it's a pleasure to, to come on here finally. Yeah, yeah fantastic. We've been, we've been keeping you away, Darren. You know, we've been saving, <laughs> saving the main man to last. Well, not last because we've got other people, but... <laughs> <laughs> Busy beavering we, away. Yeah, we otherwise, you know, you won't be doing the work you've got to be doing if we just <laughs> let you come on the podcast and things. So. Yeah. Uh, if you'd yeah. like to give us, yeah, a little a little background, what you do and how you do it, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um yeah, so I've been working in um cloud and software development now for quite a few years, probably 10, 15 years. Over that time, software's evolved quite a lot really. Um and my career's gone from working on um, monolithic single applications um, and moved through to um, through to uh, microservice development and um, and eventually onto um, cloud architecture. Um, I used to work in a in a um, energy management company, and one of the things we we do is um, we deploy services onto the edge which is um the the um factory or the uh the building um, which it was really a smart building and we bring that sensor data in in from a smart building and um, put it through a load of systems and 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 um allow the end user to see it and and, and control that data um okay and then from there kind of moved on to cloud development so um taking all of those systems that we've got um on site in one data center and just moving them up into the cloud um so that you could um view the data anywhere in the world and it'd be really efficient and um close to where the user is um so yeah we've talked a bit up in the past about nano service microservice type of thing um and whenever i talk about it i'm talking about it generally from a position of uh using information that you guys have told me or something like this so we thought this is an opportunity to get you 
you know from the horse's mouth directly and we were talking the other day darren that you were particularly interested in about or thinking about the moment how these stateless microservice nano services talk and message between each other um so yeah give us a bit of background about that really yeah so um i guess first just to recap on microservices and and where we are with those so um, i know you guys have talked about it so microservices they've gone from um legacy um, one deployment services that are very big and very difficult to manage um, and that's moved to microservices which are all very granular services that all in, live independently um, they can be deployed independently and scaled independently um, and that's great um, but the problem with microservices is how do they talk to each other so you might have 10, 50, 100 microservices that are, that, are, that are talking at the same time. It's like, how do I know that um, as I'm the product microservice, how do I talk to the, um, I don't know, to the email sending microservice? Um, it's almost an impossible task to know that everything, um, all of the services that are available and how you communicate with them. Um, and that probably leads to one of the biggest anti-patterns in microservices is, is, is how do you communicate? Um, and this is really just to break it down, there's three common ways of um, communicating in microservices. So you've got HTTP communication, which um, is commonly used, widely supported. Everybody knows what that is. Um, you've got message-based communication. Um, and we've got event-driven communication. Um, so with HTTP communication, as we all know, it's uh, widely supported, um, mainly synchronous. By that, I mean that um, you start a piece of work, you send a request to the server, um, and then you sit and wait for the response to come back. Um, yeah, you can... Um, the problem with HTTP communication is you need to manage service discovery. So um, how do you know that the service that you're trying to communicate to is is up? Um, what what do you do if, um, if the service is down? Um, how many times do you retry? Um, and what do you do if it ultimately fails? Um, will it bring down your entire microsystem architecture because the um, product ordering um, service is not available? Um, so that moves us on to the next kind of um, communication um, protocol, which is message-based communication. So um, there's different types of messaging um, messages. Um, so the the main message that you've got is, um, might be an AMPQ message, advanced message um, Q protocol. They always get those two the wrong way around. Um, but essentially a, a message is, it's like a HTTP request. Um, it contains all of the data, such as if I'm um, publishing a, an order or creating an order, it, it contains all of the order data, um, and it puts that message on a queue, and then um, something else picks that up off the queue and processes that data. That's kind of, that's generally referred to as the publish and consumer um, um, pattern. Um, and the, the key bit with the message is it's like HTTP is that um, the publisher expects the subscriber to do something. So if I publish a message to place an order, I expect the order to be placed. Um, and the, the real good and clever thing about messages is you can you can ensure that it's only ever delivered once, um, or you can ensure that there's no, there's no duplicates, um, or you could um, ensure the order of messages. So if, if we're, if a number of messages are, are processed at the same time then how do you know which one you should you should process what order should you process them and um, message-based communication allows you to order them based on date or the time it received or or um, some other um, data that's sent out with a message um, and then also to handle um, messages that are down or messages that never reach their recipient um, you can redirect messages to a dead letter queue which is if the system died and there's nothing we could do about it then something else will notify somebody that that's happened and um and all of this is happening asynchronously so the thing that's sending it um it will send the message and move on to its next task doesn't doesn't care 
um, doesn't sit there and wait, um, just keeps going. And so that way that system would never, never um, so, fail. So it, so it has the kind of flexibility that we've got with HTTP, but also a bit more control around how those messages are sent and managed and and processed by the consumer part of it. So, um, so based on that, so what's the, what's the advantages of the third type of, of eventing? Well, yeah, the third type um, is a slightly more confusing type. So you've got event-driven communication, um, and with event-driven communication, it's there are two types of event. You've got discrete events, which are state, and you've got um, series events, which is telemetry. Um, and so discrete is when an, an order state has changed um, from um, from uh, active to complete, or a series data is telemetry data, such as um, the um, a machine move, a robot moving around a, a location, that would be telemetry data. Um, and so event-driven communication really is um, its a notification that something's happened. It, it, it's There's no expect, expectation on the consumer to do anything. So it might be that an example of that would be that um, a file's been uploaded um, and then an event would be fired to say that um, the file has been uploaded and it contain all the information about the file, but not the actual file itself. And then you might have another service that um, picks up that event and it resizes the file to um, all of the mobile size files that you needed or um, or any other kind of um, ancillary um, service that needs to run. So such as um, you might want to email somebody if a file's been uploaded or create an archive copy of that file. But um, the main thing is, is that it, there is no expectation on that event to be processed and there's no expectation on um, on the information that's in, in that event. And so, yeah, so the case there is that it's about knowing what type of messaging or approach to take, depending on what you're looking to do with it. So the context of how you're using it is all key. Um, so inside uh, inside Atlas are, are you know based on the services that we've developed. What, what kind of what kind of uh, messages are we using for those so those microservices to talk to each other? Yeah, um, that's a that's a good kind of context to put around it, really. So I guess really we're we're using all of them um, because each of those things are good in different scenarios, and so um, we don't we'd never say you only use one over the other. So in the case of Atlas. Um, we have microservices, and so because HTTP is a very widely used um, format, we use that as the front-end um, messaging platform from our mobile devices and websites to communicate with our application gateway, which sits in front of all of our, our um, microservices. And then between our application gateway and our microservices, we use message-based um well, we use messages, <laughs> message-based communication to communicate between our software. And that, that ensures that the message will be um, sent to um, our services and eventually it will be consistent across the rest of our services. Um, so we use that for um, if we're starting a workflow we um, or start running a process. So we start a process, so we have a message that's sent um, to the back end and that will... Um, ensure that a process has been started and um, it will return to the front end that that process has been started and the, the process is updated on the front end. Um, and then alongside that, we fire an event to say that this process has been started. Here is the information about that process, such as its ID and its name and um, any uh, information that's been entered at that time and we fire that event and quite a few systems pick that up so in terms of um, the event um, boost for instance would pick that information up from that event and update any dashboards that are associated with that uh, with running processes so now it knows that um, it can update its dashboard and show a new a new event is running oh, sorry a new process is running but the actual main um flow of start an event knows nothing about that dashboard being updated yeah. because it's not in its um, main flow 
So in that round trip, we've gone from everything from HTTP through to the messaging and the coordination of those microservices to the creating of events. So in inverters commas third party applications can react to those events so one round trip is actually contains all three different types yeah yeah exactly that and um yeah it, it's a good way of um using all of the different technologies to never together um in in their best suited kind of um use cases brilliant um I'm sure this is over Alex's head. Not to say that Alex wouldn't get the hand. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> I love these sessions because as the content writer for Atlas, I tend to talk about things from a very top-down view, so how it all fits together conceptually. But then when you get down into the weeds, it's there's all of these. I'm always amazed by they are sort of, it feels like one big flowing thing, but it's lots of tiny bits working together to make a seamless product, basically. Mm. And it's incredible. Yeah, and it's, yeah, actually, yeah, oh, it's analogous to human communication, isn't it? Some, we communicate in different ways for different things, and in a way, that's exactly what we're doing with the different types of uh, messaging and uh, in a distributed architecture, which is basically what we have these days. Um, very scalable, distributed um, individual components that need to be able to talk to each other so it's a bit like a society trying to make a society work <laughs> yeah. Yeah, communicate with each other but inside a computer um, incredible yeah, stuff great stuff well thank you very much darren uh that was very uh good and always nice to um chat uh hopefully people find a little bit of the technology and how we go about things interesting but um i do that's nice I certainly do. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I think. Yeah, I really enjoy evaluating the different type of things that we do and kind of sharing the knowledge of how we do it. Really, so it's great, great to, stuff. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Great. Thanks, guys. Bye. Cheers. That's it for another episode of the Atlas podcast. Uh, fascinating, as always. Thank you for joining me, Martin. Thank you, Alan. And, uh, yeah, as always, we have a quote. This one is one you picked out from uh, some stuff we were discussing earlier around innovation funding and where the ideas come from, where the push comes from. And this is actually from a, an article on Wired, which we'll post in the comments, um, by Mariana, or an interview with Mariana Matsukato, uh, and she says, the real driver of innovation isn't loan geniuses, but state investment. History tells us innovation is an outcome of a massive collective effort, not just from a narrow group of young white men in California. So inflammatory, perhaps, correct, perhaps, but exciting, definitely. Well, she, I mean, she's fascinating. Uh, she's got, there's quite a lot of her talks on TED and TED talks and things like that. So I think it's, um, I mean, she really comes from an economist background uh, mm. and looking at how, as we were discussing earlier, about how the economy funds innovation. Um, and really, she was very focused on the the economic or what a f e future economic world could look like post the uh, financial crisis of 2008. Um, mm. And I think she's very influential in some of those discussions, but... I think we're still a little way from adopting some of those um, new economic models, which I think are desperately needed. For sure. Well, we'll have to get her on the podcast just so we can find out ourselves. Excellent. All righty. Thanks, Martin. Okay, bye. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out 